Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, A blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Well, a number of years ago, there was a man named Eugene, and he came down with a very rare disease called viral encephalitis. And uh, viral encephalitis is caused by a common bacteria uh, that produces cold sores, fever blisters, and whatnot. Uh, but it's rare when it actually makes its way to the brain. And it often can be quite deadly. The disease starts to literally eat away portions of your brain. Thankfully, uh, they were able to catch it before it killed Eugene. But it had started to uh, take away parts of it, actually eat parts of his brain specifically the parts of his brain that involved memory, short-term memory. So he had trouble remembering names. He had trouble even remembering that he had children. Uh, Had trouble remembering conversations that he would have from one second to the next. But there was really some kind of strange things about how Eugene behaved. And it just fascinated researchers. Uh, For example, uh, one thing the researchers asked him was, when you get up in the morning, uh, how do you know where to go? How do you know how to get to the bathroom or the kitchen? He says, you know, I don't really know. They said, well, you, can you draw a little diagram maybe of your house, where roughly the kitchen is, where the bathroom is, where the bedroom is? Couldn't do it. But then as the researcher is typing away and working on his work, Eugene had to go to the bathroom, and he just got up, found his way somehow to the bathroom. They asked him where the kitchen was, had no idea where the kitchen was. But they asked him, well, what would you do if you felt hungry? He said, well, I'd get up, and then he walked right into the kitchen, went up to the cupboard, grabbed some nuts, and started eating the nuts. Then there was another situation that kind of baffled researchers. Uh, His wife uh, would take him on walks every day in the morning and the afternoon, and uh, doctors told her, Make sure you keep an eye on him at all times because if he you know, started wandering away, he didn't even know where he lived, didn't know any information about himself, probably, 
probably just knew his name. So it would be a bad thing if he started wandering, and who knows where he would end up. So she kept a close eye on him, but one day she was in the shower, and she came out of the shower, and then she sees that he's gone. So she runs out of the house. She's screaming, Eugene, Eugene. She goes up and and down the street, knocking on neighbors' doors, thinking that maybe he went into the wrong house, couldn't find him. So after about 15 minutes or so, she, he, she walks back into the house, and there Eugene is, sitting on the couch, watching the History Channel. Next to him, or, or near the kitchen, he had put a, uh, some pine cones that he had picked up off of the ground. And she's, she was baffled. So researchers came, and they kind of studied, studied him a little bit more, and they said, well, can you give a little map of your town, or or the route that you go. Can you show us where you go? Couldn't do it. So they decided to go on the walk with him. So they're walking with him, and he's kind of leading the way, and he's going the right way, and then they turn the corner towards his house, and they ask him, okay, which one is your house? He says, I don't, don't really know. But then he kept walking. He walked right up into his house, uh, and went the right way. See, the, this man had kind of gone to his uh, primal instincts, to his rote memory, that he was able to do things by habit, but he wasn't consciously aware of them. It was almost like he was on autopilot. It's almost like maybe if you've uh, been doing something in your house, and maybe you go to a certain area of the house, and then you get there, and you're like, what was I doing here? See, he was, he was moving around, but he was really lost. He had no idea where he was going. And I think that's kind of how the people are in this passage. The crowds uh, are following after Jesus. Jesus' disciples are very tired. They've been doing so much ministry, and Jesus tells them, just get, get away, spend some time by yourselves. But the crowds are following them. And they're moving around with much activity, but just like Eugene, it's almost like they're on autopilot. They're following Jesus, but they're not really sure what they need. They're not really sure what they want. They're lost. They're following Jesus, but they're lost. And it says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, when we hear the story of the feeding of the 5,000, we might think of it as like a picnic. You know, we see pictures of families out on the hill, you know, eating their bread and the fish. Probably wasn't exactly like that. There's a number of uh, things in the text that indicate that this was probably a type of military group. There were many zealots in this area. Zealots were people who wanted to overthrow the Roman authorities. And there's a couple uh, hints in this text that indicate that this was kind of a military gathering, that they were trying to get together to try to get an army, so to speak, to overthrow the authorities. For example, only the men are mentioned in this group. There's also a mention of people going in and out, which could uh, indicate suspicious activity. In John's account of the event, it says that the people came and they wanted to make Jesus king by force. They wanted someone to lead them to be their ruler. But Jesus says they're like a sheep without a shepherd. Imagine a sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd would lack direction. They wouldn't know how to find food. They wouldn't know how to find their way home. And also, they wouldn't have protection. They'd have no defense against the wild animals that would threaten them. 
In the Old Testament, the leaders of Israel are often referred to as the shepherds of God's people. There were good shepherds like Moses and David and Joshua who led God's people in battle and also led them to the Lord. But there was also a number of bad shepherds. They're described in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 8. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Bad shepherds fail to lead the sheep. They fail to protect the sheep. And often they do harm to the sheep. The people of Israel at this time period were the victims of some bad shepherds. The Pharisees, the scribes, they led people away from God. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says of them, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So there's some victims of spiritually some bad shepherds and the scribes and the Pharisees, and also politically they're a victim of a bad shepherd. King Herod. We didn't read the passage preceding this, but the passage preceding this describes a story about how John the Baptist was murdered by King Herod. The king of the Jews murders God's servant, God's prophet. So here these 5,000 men who are victims of bad shepherds are looking for someone to lead them, to guide them, protect them. And Jesus takes the fulfills the prophecy of Ezekiel 34, and he becomes a shepherd to these people. And we see that Jesus the shepherd, the good shepherd, does two things for these people. The first thing that he does is he satisfies his people. The first way that Jesus provides for his people is that he provides for them spiritually. It says in the text that he began to teach them many things. He teaches them the ways of the Lord. He teaches them that He can provide for them. The world we live in today, we live in a world that's increasingly restless. Many in our culture unthinkingly give their lives to things that ultimately don't matter. To money, to pleasure, to the advancement of our own name. And so many of us in our culture are like the people in this passage, kind of wandering about the countryside, kind of engaged in activity, but really being lost, not knowing exactly why we're doing what we're doing, hoping that something could satisfy us, and in the end, we end up empty. But Jesus comes and He shows us what we need. He shows that what we need most, more than anything else, is that we need Himself. So Jesus, the Good Shepherd, satisfies our souls. In verse 41 of this passage, we see that Jesus says a blessing He breaks the bread and then he distributes it. It's very similar to another event in the book of Mark that comes a little bit later in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. It says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And that's in the Last Supper as Jesus is about to die. He does the same thing, has a blessing, breaks the bread apart, and gives them to them. Gives the bread to them. And so this feeding of the 5,000 is likely a foreshadowing to the Lord's Supper. So it's not just that Jesus is providing sustenance for the people. He's showing them that He is the sustenance. That He is the bread that's sent down from heaven. He is the one that they need. So He provides for His people spiritually 
He provides the way for them to be satisfied in Him forever. But He also provides for them physically. He's not some detached deity that's only concerned about spiritual things. He also cares about their physical needs. It says in the text that Jesus had the crowd sit down in groups. And He had them sit down, it says, on green grass. It's remarkably similar to what it says in Psalm chapter 23 where David says that the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel 34 where, he, where it says in Ezekiel, I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture, pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So this shows us that Jesus cares for our physical needs, not just our spiritual needs. Of course, that's the number one thing, the spiritual needs, that we're satisfied in Him. But He also cares about the little things, and that we can come to Him with whatever request we might have, knowing that He'll provide for us. He calls us in the, in the Lord's Prayer to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So we can bring our request to Him, big and small, knowing that He'll answer and hear us. So the Good Shepherd provides satisfaction for His people, but He also provides significance for His people. Now Jesus' disciples come to Him and they say, the hour is late, the people are hungry, send them to the town so that they might have food. And then Jesus makes a very interesting statement to them. He says, you feed them. Okay, Jesus... Uh, should I get out my checkbook and go down to the market and write a check for 200 denarii of bread? I mean, this was an enormous amount of money that it would have cost to feed all of these people. And 200 denarii, maybe that wouldn't even have satisfied the whole crowd. It's about 200 days' labor. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll just go down and buy all this bread from the market. Right, right, that sounds good. But Jesus says, you feed them. Jesus wants His disciples to take responsibility for the needs that's in front of them. Sometimes we'll see a need that's in front of us and we'll pray to God, God, will you meet this need? Will you send someone to meet this need? And, some, and then God sometimes is like, yeah, that person is you. I want you to meet that need. You feed them and I'll do the rest. Now look at what Jesus does. He says, how many loaves do you have? Go find out how many loaves you have. Go search the crowd and see what you have. They come up with five loaves and two fish. I mean, what good does that do? Each person can have a little crumb. Just a tiny portion of the fish. But Jesus prays to the Father and then begins to distribute the bread, distribute the fish. And and there's so much that there's 12 baskets left over and everybody is satisfied. I think we fall into the same trap sometimes that the disciples fall into. Sometimes we look at what we have in our hands rather than looking at what God can do through us. We're focused on what we have. I've only got five loaves. I've only got two fish. What good is that going to do? Maybe for us, it's like, I don't, got much of, I don't have much of an education. I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't have a lot of money. I don't know what good I could do. There's millions of people out there who have all these needs. There's millions of people who don't know the Lord. And what good could I do with what I have? God's not asking us to change the world. God is not asking 
these people to feed the 5,000 by themselves. God's going to do the miracle. God's just asking, Jesus just asking the disciples, give me what you do have. Find what you have and give it to me. Give me the five loaves. Give me the two fish. And I'll do the rest with them. I think sometimes we feel like if we're serving God, we're somehow doing Him a favor. Like God needs me to do this. God needs me to serve. God needs me. He needs my money. He needs my devotion. He needs this. He needs that. The truth is God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need these disciples. Look at this story. Jesus could have snapped his finger and had manna fall down from heaven, bread fall down from heaven. He could have snapped his finger and had bread appear before all the people. But he doesn't do that. He says to the disciples, you feed them. Go get what you have and bring it to me. And then he takes the bread and he gives it to the disciples. And then the disciples go and give it to those 5,000. He allows the disciples to be a part of the miracle. And the same thing is true for us. He allows us to be a part of his plan of reaching the world. He could have skipped the disciples altogether. He didn't need them. He could have skipped over, he could skip over us altogether. He doesn't need us, but he chooses as a gracious gift to allow us to be part of his plan of reaching the world with the love of the gospel. What a blessing that is. And all he calls us to do is give him what we have in our hands. Maybe that's one loaf. Maybe it's five loaves. Maybe that's ten loaves. But all we got to do is give that to him and he'll do the rest. I was meeting this week with a man named uh, Sean. And uh, Sean is a photographer. Um, I don't think he has much ministry training uh, or any ministry training. Um, I don't know if he has any business experience, but he's a regular photographer. And I met him uh, shortly after I graduated from college a number of years ago. And I was helping at a youth group at a local church, and he was also helping at the youth group. Um, and he would speak maybe once a month or once every two months, and I would speak once in a while. And God began to work on his heart, and God began to move in his heart and uh, create this burden in his heart for the people, the homeless people in Niagara Falls. And so God led him to start a homeless shelter down there. And I remember kind of the initial stages of that. I was a little bit skeptical. Uh, Kind of the first phase of that was somebody donated uh, this big old rickety motorhome. And uh, he would go down there, and I went with him sometimes, and we'd uh, pass out um, soup to people when it was cold. Just kind of talk to people about the gospel. And kind of in my immaturity, I admit I was a little bit skeptical. And sometimes I thought, what are we we doing in this old motorhome? How is this going to turn into a homeless shelter? How is this going to meet the needs? But after some time, God began to bless the ministry. They were able to start a ministry through an abandoned church uh, down in Niagara Falls. And then in 2010, they were able to purchase an old uh, large house on Ferry Street in Niagara Falls. They did renovations on that house, and uh, in 2012, they open the facility. And I remember in the spring of 2012, I came back, I was finishing up seminary, and I served at that homeless shelter, did an internship. Um, And they were open, but they weren't really advertising a whole lot. And sometimes I'd 
come to the dinner and it would be like there'd be one other one couple there. You know, and I would give the message to just one couple. You know, sometimes there'd be ten or twelve. You just never knew, and you, you know, it, it could get discouraging when there's only a couple people coming. But within a matter of months, God began to bless the ministry, so much so that they were get, within a few months, they were giving out 1,500 meals a week. In 2015, they purchased a 60,000-square-foot facility that used to be the YMCA downtown for a whopping price of $1. The next year after that, they were awarded a 